Welcome to Torah Imecha Parsha with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Danielle Bloom, and today we will be studying Parsha Shemos. I would like to begin with an overview of the Parsha, then ask one key question, and present three separate approaches to it. Let's outline the Parsha first. Rabbi Sachs' words with Shemot, the defining drama of the Jewish people, begins. In exile in Egypt, they multiply until they are no longer a family, but a nation. This is the book that begins with Yaakov Ish Ubeito and concludes with Kol Beit Israel. What starts out as one family transforms into a nation of interconnected families. And so we remain until today. Paro, fearing that they pose a threat to Egypt, enslaves them and orders all the male children to be killed. In Parak Bet, we meet Moshe. We learn of his birth story and his adoption by Paro's daughter, which is followed by three vignettes, which seem to explain Moshe's chosenness. He stands up for his Jewish brethren, whether they are being abused by Egyptians or abusing each other, as a result of which he is forced to run to Midian. And there he stands up for a group of Midianite women who are being taunted at the well, standing for the underdog, even when neither party is his own. Moshe is all about doing the right thing. In Prakim Gimel and Dalet, Moshe encounters God at the burning bush. He is chosen by God to confront Paro and lead the people to freedom. For seven days, he argues with God until finally, God takes away all options. And reluctantly, Moshe agrees. In Parakhe, he confronts Paro, but this intervention only makes things worse. And the Parsha ends with Moshe turning to God and questioning why he was sent. And God answers, you will see what I will do to Paro. The question I'd like to deal with is, how are we to understand this suffering in Egypt? What was the purpose of it? Nechama Leibowitz, in her opening essay on this Chumash, points us in two distinct directions. First, she discusses the sources that relate to it as a punishment. I would like to present some support for this approach in the language of the Psukim, and then in the Midrash and the Nitziv. If we look back to Beratius, we find that the Egyptians were struggling with famine. They had nothing to eat. And Yosef, who was the ruler of Egypt at the time, had accumulated a lot of food. So the people come to him and they say they need food. And Yosef says, okay, so buy it. And they use up all their money. And then they run out of money. And Yosef says, well, then you need to give me your animals. And they lose all their animals. And then they lose their land. And finally, they sell themselves. And in this way, all of Egypt becomes slaves to Paro. And not only that, the Torah tells us that Yosef moved the people out of the cities they had lived in and into other land. And then their enslavement was really complete. But the Jewish people at that time were doing really well. The Torah tells us, And this Pasuk uses language that is haunting. That word, and the language of implies not just passing through a place, but rather dwelling there, and grabbing hold of the land. 
That word, achuzah, has been used before in Bracious. It was the word that we used when Avraham bought land to bury Sarah. La'achuzah's kever, me'eis b'neiches. It's a word that will be used again later in Bamidbar when the Benos Tzlavchad will ask for Tnalanu achuzah besoch ache avinu. The word achuzah, an ancestral homeland, a nachala that will be forever, for the Jewish people is always the land of Israel. And yet, the Jews had truly settled in Mitzrayim. And they are multiplying and they are successful. And that word will reverberate in the beginning of Shmos Parak Aleph. When now, suddenly, the tables have turned. The Egyptians are enslaving us. And we have multiplied. We have become a nation in slavery. The Midrashim talk about the fact that the Jewish people stopped doing brismila. They told themselves they wanted to be like Egypt. And therefore, God turns the love that the Egyptians had felt toward them into hate, almost like an external punishment. And Atziv takes that one step further. He describes the reality where the Jews are buying land wherever they can find it that they've moved out of Goshen where Yaakov had wanted them to stay separate. And instead, they're buying houses right among the Egyptians. And he proves it by saying later on in Makas Bachoros, Hashem's going to have to jump over the homes of the Jewish people, meaning they were living side by side. And then it ends with this frightening word, he says, this is Hasiba Shabakal Dorvadar Umdimalenu Lachalosenu, Bishfil Shain Anu Rotzim Lios Kagir and Vinivdalimanumos. Says in every single generation we suffer the same fate because we don't want to be separate, we don't want to be different. We want to blend in and be like everyone else. A second answer that Nachamlibutz presents to the same question, and I believe that it is truly there in the Psukim as well is educative in nature. It's the expectation that the Torah has that through redeeming our suffering, we create an engine for our mitzvah observance. This experience of Shibud Mitzrayim, of suffering in Egypt, forms the bedrock of our Shmiras HaMitzvos. Just to give you a few examples of Psukim, where this is stated explicitly, the Gerlo Atem Yidatem Esnefesh Hager Ki Mitzrayim. Why can't you abuse the, the convert? Because you know what it felt like to be a stranger in Egypt. In Devarim, when it gives the reason for the mitzvah of Shabbos and why we have to let everyone rest, kamocha, just like us, you know what it feels like to suffer, to be slaves in Egypt, and how God took you out of that. Al kain Hashem that's why you need to let other people rest. The third answer I would like to suggest is not focused so much on the Jewish story as on the world story. Moshe comes to Paro and tells him that God has commanded that Paro send the Israelites out on a three-day journey into the desert in order to worship God. And Paro responds, Mi Hashem asher bekolo, lo yadati es Hashem. Who is this God that I should listen to his voice? 
I don't know this God. And of course, that statement sets up the central or one of the central tensions of the first half of this book. God proclaims, You say you don't know me, but you will know me. And we all know how this will resolve. Egypt will be consumed in violence and destruction. And I think we almost take it for granted that it had to be this way. But perhaps it didn't. In fact, the very request that Moshe makes to Paro substantiates his claim. Why is Moshe asking for a three-day journey into the desert? Is that what he wanted? Is he telling the truth? And you'll notice he never backs down from that claim, from that request. And the Mepharshim really struggle with this one. So far as the Chizkuni who says, Yeah, they went three days. Uh, they also went more than that. Rabbi David Foreman, in his book, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over, has the following incredible thought based on a piece by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. He writes the following. We wondered earlier why Moshe only asked for a three-day break for the Hebrews to worship their God in the desert. Why stoop to lying to the Egyptian king? But maybe Moshe was not lying at all. One of the hardest things to do when contemplating the past is playing what if. What if the United States had not intercepted a coded Japanese message indicating the precise location of the Japanese fleet in the Pacific just before the Battle of Midway? And so it is with Torah. We will never know what would have happened had Paro not reacted as he did to Moshe's second speech. What if, instead of callously accusing his slaves of laziness, he had assented to Moshe's small, baby-step request for a three-day holiday to allow the Hebrews to worship their God? It is an interesting question, so let's speculate for a moment. Had Paro initially responded cooperatively in good faith, isn't it at least conceivable that the Israelites would have actually returned to Egypt after the three-day holiday he granted them? Had events actually transpired this way, we might say that the first baby step would have succeeded. Paro would have recognized God, and then it would be time to take a second baby step, to move the education process one step further. If Paro continued to prove himself amenable to thoughtful consideration and reason, there might be no need for harsher measures like plagues. Slowly, step by step, Paro could have been brought to understand the truth about this deity the Hebrews worshipped. At the end of these incremental steps, Paro might come to realize that he, no less than Israel, is a subject of this one power, this master of the universe, and consequently, he must abide by the Creator's wishes and set Israel free. History could have taken this path if only Paro had allowed himself to walk it. There would have been no plagues, no violence, only gradual understanding of an overwhelming truth. I want to hope for a better future for us, for our children, for all humanity. I think in today, indeed, we need to look to the future in our what-if scenario and ask ourselves, what is our role in bringing redemption to the world? Thank you for learning together with the OU Women's Initiative.